This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, we introduce a new feature, Behind the Memo, in which Howard sheds some light on the thought process behind his most recent memo. Here he is discussing selling out. This memo basically got its start in a memo that I wrote in 2015 called liquidity. And at that time, there was significant concern that the liquidity afforded by the U.S. stock market had contracted, meaning that people who own stock either can't sell it as quickly or can't sell as much of it at the market price without depressing the price and so forth. So I wanted to respond to that. And after assessing the conditions at the time, I got into later on a discussion of, frankly, whether liquidity is a good thing. And most investors desire liquidity, that is the ability to sell, A, legally, because there are certain things you can't resell in the public market, and in size and be speedy and without depressing the market price. Everybody says, well, we want to be able to have liquidity. Usually, they don't use it. So if you pass by investments A, B, and C because they're not liquid, and it's liquidity that you wouldn't use, then obviously, you're not doing yourself a favor. Many private investments can't be sold. You would never sell them anyway. And every portfolio, especially institutional scale portfolio, should be able to accommodate a certain layer of investments that can't be sold. But people want liquidity. Is that a good thing? I believe that as a broad brush statement, it's fair to say that investors trade too much. Most people don't have the ability to trade well. Most trading is not helpful especially given the fact that trading involves trading costs, commissions, and what we call market impact. The fact that you selling your assets, if you sell enough of it, can depress the price of your assets and thus the price that you realize in the sale. It's important to notice that making money through investing, if you think about it, it's not a matter of what you buy and what you sell. It's a matter of what you hold. And so expending a lot of energy thought and costs to buy and sell may not be a great thing. We used to say when I was a kid, don't just stand there, do something. My advice is don't just do something, stand there and let your holdings compound. Lately, since he's joined the profession in the last 10 years, I've brought my son, Andrew, into the process of creating these memos. Back in 2015, I showed him the memo on liquidity, and I asked what he thought, and he said something that I thought was brilliant. He said, if you look at the chart of a stock that's been up for 20 years, and you say, man, I wish I'd owned that stock, he said, think of all the days you would have had to talk yourself out of selling. And I think that's brilliant. You look at a stock that's been up hugely, an example of that, which I referred to in the memo, is Amazon. And in the last 20 years, roughly, Amazon has gone from $6 to roughly $3,300. It's up 650 times in 20 years. Think of all the times you would have to have talked yourself out of selling. You bought it at six. You might have to talk yourself out of selling at 12 and 24 and 60 and 300 and 600 and so forth. 10 years after you bought it at six, it hit 600. How many people would continue to hold after something's up 100 times? So most people would have sold at least some. Some people would have sold all of it. And today, it's up five and a half times from there. So I thought that this idea of discouraging selling 
and talking yourself out of selling was a great idea. And that idea in itself was really the genesis for this memo. The more I've thought about this question of selling and about the fact that people tend to trade too much, the more I became convinced, and I say this half for shock value, half tongue in cheek, but only half, that a lot of people sell because things are up and they sell because things are down. Obviously, it doesn't make any sense to do both of those things. If you should sell things that are up, then you certainly shouldn't sell things that are down and vice versa. But I believe that people largely do for psychological reasons. So let's take those one at a time. I believe strongly that people sell things for the simple reason that they're up. If you doubt that, think about this thing called taking profits. I think that most people are thrilled to see that something they own has risen substantially. And looking at the psychology behind people's behavior, I think it's only human to want to realize some or all of that gain, to make it concrete and make it so that it can never go away. I believe, especially in the markets and especially for people who manage money, which isn't their own money, one of the things people want to do is they want to minimize regret. For many people, it terrifies them to think that you could have a gain today and tomorrow it could go away. And you'd end up kicking yourself for having been so dumb as to not realize the gain while it existed. Now it's gone. So I do think that there's a great tendency to take profits just for their own sake. But clearly that flies in the face of what Andrew said about having that 20-year winner. If gains in themselves are a reason to sell, then it would be virtually impossible to hold on to something that appreciates for 20 years. If one of our goals is to get on board these great winners and hold on, clearly selling things that are up doesn't make any sense. And so I conclude the section of the memo entitled Selling Because It's Up by saying, I'm not saying that investors shouldn't sell appreciated assets and realize profits, but it certainly doesn't make sense to sell things just because they're up. There should be other reasons. Likewise, I believe people sell things because they're down. And as I said earlier, it's hard to imagine that it makes sense to sell things because they're up and makes sense to sell things because they're down. Why would people sell things that are down? There are a number of answers. And again, it goes back to investor psychology. Many times I understand investor behavior by visualizing a movie. And in this particular movie, an investor buys something at 100 and it goes to 120 and he says, man, I think I'm onto something here. I'm going to increase the size of my position. So he bought some at 100. He buys more at 120. Then it goes to 150. And now he says, hey, now I'm sure that I'm right. And he doubles up at 150. So he owns more when the price is 150 than he did when the price was 100. That's not the goal in life. The goal is to own more at 100 maybe than you did at 150. But anyway, I think everything else being equal, leaving aside the desire to take profits in the short run, I think that people become more confident, more positive, more optimistic 
the better the economy and the companies do and the higher stocks go. But what if he buys at 100 and it falls to 90? Well, most people will say, you know, I liked it at 100. I like it more at 90. I'm going to buy more. But then it falls to 75. And then they say, you know, uh, I don't know. Now I'm not so sure. I'm going to try to revalidate my thesis before I add any. In theory, you should like it more at 75 than you did at 90, but people start putting on the brakes. Now it falls to 50, and they say, oh, now now I'm really worried. I must have missed something. There must be something going on that I don't understand. I'm going to reduce my position. Now it falls to 20, and they say, this is really going terrible. I must have missed something. I'm going to get out before it falls to zero. I do think that psychologically, there are forces that conspire to get us to do the wrong thing, to increase positions as they rise and to decrease positions as they fall. I start off in the memo by talking about the old saw, buy low, sell high. It's a very oversimplified version of what we're supposed to be about. But I do think that everything in human nature tends to get us to buy high when we're optimistic and positive and buoyed by favorable developments and sell low when we're depressed and pessimistic and afflicted by recent developments. So I do think there is pressure, psychological pressure to sell things for the simple reason that they're down. I mentioned before that people who have securities that are up are afraid of surrendering the gains. Likewise, many investors worry that by not selling, they'll allow their losses to compound. And especially, I guess, that their clients will say, look, it fell from 100 to 50. There had to be something wrong with it. Everybody knew that that was going to continue to decline. And in fact, look, it went to 20. So clearly, you were off the beam. So there's a question of whether investors really make these behavioral mistakes that I talk about. I go through a couple of simplistic anecdotal proofs in the memo. The first most interesting is that there have been lots of studies that show that the average mutual fund investor does worse than the average mutual fund. How can that be? If the mutual fund investors just bought and held, then mathematically, the average mutual fund investor would do the same as the average mutual fund. How can they do worse? The answer is that they must, on average, get out of the things that have done poorly and then miss the fact that many of those poor performers enjoy a rebound in order to chase, to get into the things that have done best and in many cases just get on in time for a regression to the mean, in time for that superior performance to reverse. So clearly these studies suggest, and I believe that human nature dictates, that people chase winners and dump losers. That's true on the retail level. What about the pros? You know that over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a very strong trend in mutual funds toward indexation and other forms of passive investing. Why is that? Well, I was taught in grad school in the 60s that the average mutual fund does worse than the indices, especially after the imposition of trading costs and fees. It seems that it's held true. And that this has motivated the movement of capital from actively managed mutual funds in equities to passively managed funds to the extent where now I believe that the majority of equity mutual fund capital 
is invested passively because market timing and weightings, manipulation, and stock picking is so bad. So this is further proof that on average, people make mistakes. A lot of people sell because they think that a dip lies ahead. They may say they want to remain long-term investors. They may say they continue to like a particular asset, but they may be persuaded for one reason or another that in the days, weeks, months that lie ahead, either the market will have a dip or the particular asset they're thinking about will suffer a temporary decline. Maybe you think, for example, that in a young startup, a lot of the founder stock will become unlocked in the coming months and they may dump to liquefy and that may depress the price of the stock. So you may say, well, I'm going to sell now and get out ahead of that. Or people say it doesn't look so great for the economy. We're worried about inflation. We're worried about rates going up. So the market is likely to have a temporary dip. We're going to get out ahead of that. We call this market timing. These are not fundamentally driven investment decisions. These are tactical investment decisions that people engage in to show their and benefit from their cleverness in anticipating dips. But I go through in the memo the fact that trying to be a market timer, selling in anticipation of a dip, introduces a number of significant questions. Number one, why sell something that you think has positive long-term potential to prepare for a dip that you expect to be temporary? Number two, selling today introduces just one more of the many ways as an investor to be wrong. There are so many since the decline may or may not occur. A decline which could occur, is that a good reason to sell a good asset? Number three, Charlie Munger, vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, points out that if you sell for market timing reasons, it actually gives you two ways to be wrong. The dip you're worried about may or may not arise, but even if you're prescient and the dip does occur, you have to figure out when to go back in. When is it low enough? A lot of people might say, well, a lot of people do say, I'm not going to go back in until it reaches the bottom. I've written long diatribes on the subject that we never know when the bottom has been reached. So if you're smart enough to get out in anticipation of a dip, what's the probability that you'll be smart enough to get in? I think rather than Charlie's two ways to be wrong, there may actually be three ways to be wrong if you try market timing. Number one, the dip may not happen. Number two, if it declines, you may not be able to figure out when to get back in. And number three, you have to decide what to do with the proceeds in the meantime. And all three of those can be wrong. So you're actually compounding the likelihood of making a mistake. I believe that people who sell because they're worried about the future, even if they're right, often so celebrate their success in avoiding a dip that they spend all their time congratulating themselves and patting themselves on the back and they forget to get back in. Lastly, what if you're wrong and there is no dip? And rather than going down, the asset we're talking about just continues to go up. Then you have lost out on those gains. You may never get back in the market because you may in order to validate your thinking and your actions, you may say, no, no, I'm not going to get back in until it does adjust downward, until it corrects, and you may never get back in. So 
the point is, when you try to be a market timer, there are so many potential pitfalls, and it's so unlikely that you're going to get it right. If you think about it, there are very few opportunities to really time the markets confidently and correctly. When I was writing my second book, Mastering the Market Cycle, I said to my son, Andrew, you know, Andrew, I think that most of my market calls have been correct. And he said, he always makes these cogent observations. He said that that's because you did it five times in 50 years. There are very few opportunities to time the markets when the market is at such an extreme of over or undervaluation that the evidence is compelling and the probability of being right is high. And most people can't identify those, don't have the requisite skill, and should just refuse to engage. Now, there are times when you have to sell. For example, if you're a professional money manager and your client closes his account or withdraws some capital, you have to sell something because you have to meet those demands. Likewise, if you run closed-end funds and they have a finite life, and most of our funds have a 10-year life, you have to liquidate the portfolio as you approach the end of the 10-year life. Even in the eighth year, you might say to yourself, I think it's a great asset, but it's highly appreciated. And if there is a dip, I don't have enough time left to recover from that dip. So you managers of closed-end funds have to sell assets as they approach the end of the fund's life, regardless of the merits. There are times when we have to sell, and they impose some real reasons to sell, but just a fear of making a mistake shouldn't be among them. I believe that superior investing consists largely of taking advantage of the mistakes made by others. And in my opinion, selling things just because they're down is a mistake that can give the buyers of those assets at the press prices great opportunities to make money. The truth of the matter is that to be an intelligent investor, you have to study things, you have to gain a thorough knowledge, and you have to understand what the intrinsic value is and why the intrinsic value either will increase over time, pulling up the price, or is more than the current trading price and that the two are likely to converge over time, or you may believe both. But it all has to start with an understanding of intrinsic value. Investors will encounter opportunities to properly sell assets that are up and to properly sell assets that are down. But that too has to be done on the basis of an estimate of their fair value. Hopefully, you buy things because you believe, as I said before, that the intrinsic value is going to increase or the price does not fully reflect the intrinsic value or both. Let's say you buy for that reason and it works and the price works its way higher. Managing a portfolio of investments requires consistent re-evaluation of the value proposition. So the investor should say, do I think the intrinsic value is still what I used to think it was? Do I think that the outlook for the intrinsic value is still what I used to think it was? And thus for the potential of this investment. Do I think that the probability that my investment thesis will prevail and be proved out, do I think that that probability is still as good as it used to be? Maybe you used to think that the intrinsic value could go from 100 to 200. Maybe you still do, but you used to think it was 
70% likely, and now you think it's only 50-50. A reduced view of your investment thesis or a reduced view of the probability that your thesis is correct, both of those are legitimate reasons to cut holdings. That should be what investors do. The other legitimate reason to sell is that you hold the portfolio, you have views about intrinsic value and the probability that your view is correct, but something comes along which after study, you believe that's better. Either the potential is higher or the thesis seems more solid. That too is a legitimate reason to sell. If something comes along which is better and if you're fully invested, then clearly you have to make room for it in your portfolio. To buy A, you have to sell some of something else. Now, you have to choose, should that be B or C or some of each? Again, that requires you to return to your investment thesis and assess the relative potential of A, B, and C and the probability that A, B, and C are right. The decision to sell for portfolio allocation purposes should, again, be made on the basis of fundamentals and potential. And by the way, really applies equally to assets that have appreciated and assets that have depreciated. You can conclude that something that has gotten cheaper is the inferior investment or that something that has appreciated is the inferior investment. But one of the rules of nature is that unless you're prepared to use leverage, if you're fully invested and you want to buy A, you have to sell something to do so. In the 70s, when I was at Citibank, a fellow named Sidney Cottle was a consultant to our investment department, and I would meet with him to try to enhance our process. And Sid Cottle was the editor of the later editions of Security Analysis, which is considered the Bible of value investing and maybe investing overall. It was written in 1934 by Graham and Dodd. It was updated periodically. The 1940 edition is considered to have been the greatest edition. By the time the 60s rolled around and I was in college, Sid Cottle was the editor of the later editions. And in fact, I didn't know about Graham and Dodd when I was in college. We called it Graham, Dodd, and Cottle. That's what I read in 1965. So as I say, we used to meet with Sid. I've never forgotten his description of investing. Quote, the discipline of relative selection. We try to buy the best things we can find. We try to hold more of the better things and less of the not as good things and none of the bad things, the inferior things. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, it doesn't tell you anything about how to do it, but at least it gives you a goal, which is to make your decisions on a comparative basis. And that's what every smart investor tries to do. And when you make decisions on a comparative basis, clearly there are times to compare your thesis to what it used to be and the outlook for the things you own against the things that you're considering buying. And those analyses hold the key to when to sell things for legitimate reasons. An extension of this concept of relative selection is the concept of opportunity costs. And opportunity costs are an essential component of all financial decision-making and also some non-financial decision-making, whether it relates to investing or to running a company or to living your life. If you're engaged in A and B comes along and it attracts you, you should make your decisions 
based on, or I should say, while considering opportunity cost. If you sell A to buy B, what's the possibility that it's a mistake? If you continue to hold A and refuse to switch into B, what's the possibility that it's a mistake? What might you be sacrificing? In particular, if somebody thinks, oh, I'm going to sell and hold the proceeds in cash, what's the probability that your holding of cash will end up adding to your wealth more than if you had continued to hold the asset? We know that in today's market where cash yields approximately zero, we know that if you sell a stock and hold the proceeds in cash, that if the stock does anything positive at all, that was a mistake. You suffered an opportunity cost for making the move. So I think it's extremely important to always consider the impact of a move in terms of the upside potential and the opportunity cost that it might introduce if it's wrong. Summing up on all these topics, the real message is that the decision to sell or trim a position, just like the decision to create investments or add has to be done on the basis of intrinsic value or a thorough understanding of the asset's potential in order to be done intelligently. These things have to be done on the basis of judgment. I'll give you an example. All of us who manage portfolios have a favorite asset at most points in time, but none of us put all our money into that favorite asset. I've never heard of an investor with a one-asset portfolio. Why not? We all concentrate our portfolios. We overweight the things we like the most to take advantage of our knowledge and insight. But we all diversify to some extent to protect against what we don't know and can't anticipate. So we balance maximizing returns against limiting the probability of disaster and trying to ensure that while we can't get the maximum return afforded by a one-asset portfolio, we want to maximize the probability of having an excellent performance. And how are these things done? Judgmentally. There are no mathematical decision rules, in my opinion, that will work. Judgment is everything. And by definition, it can't be reduced to a mathematical formula. I conclude by saying you can try getting in and getting out of the market and timing the market and selling things that are up too much and buying things that are down too much, buying the things that have risen and selling the things that have fallen or buying the things that have fallen and selling the things that have risen. You can try all these things. They're unlikely to work. Many people don't have what it takes to do it. And as I said before, the opportunities to do it successfully don't arise all the time. And the longer I've spent as an investor, the more I've reached the conclusion that for most investors, and especially investors who have limited prescience, which is most of us, the most important thing in investing is to be invested. If you think about it, most economies and most viable companies benefit from an underlying positive secular trend line. The population grows. There are scientific advances. Thus, the economy grows. Companies benefit from the growing economy. They too make progress in methods and technology and so forth. And cash flows tend to increase over time. Assets tend to appreciate over time. And if you look at the stock market, it goes up historically, seven or eight years out of 10. So the most important thing is to hitch your wagon 
to that process and stay hitched. I have a quote in the memo from Bill Miller, who was one of the greatest investors during my lifetime. And he says that people spend so much of their time and effort trying to figure out which of the 10 years are going to be the two or three down ones. And that is really not the route to success. And he has a great quote. We believe that time, not timing, is the key to building wealth in the stock market. And I tend to agree. The S&P 500 is estimated to have returned an average of 10.5% a year for the last 90 years. That's an incredible phenomenon. Albert Einstein is reputed to have said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And if you had come into the market and invested a dollar 90 years ago at 10.5%, no trading, no market waiting, no market timing, no changing holdings, you would have $8,000 today. Now, we unfortunately no longer have the opportunity to invest 90 years ago. That opportunity has passed, but we can invest today. If you can invest at 10.5% and merely hold it, a dollar invested today will grow to $147 in 50 years. Now, you might argue that the S&P 500 is not going to compound at 10.5% going forward. You might say that the economy is going to grow more slowly than it did in the last 90 years, or that stocks are more fully understood, appreciated, and valued than they were 90 years ago. 90 years ago happens to be the early years of the depression. So, okay, I credit those points. Let's take a third off. Let's say that rather than 10 and a half, the stock market is going to compound at 7% in the future. That dollar is still going to compound to $29 in 50 years. It's really important that most investors appreciate the fact that even if they believe a decline is imminent, and if they believe they have the ability to avoid it, it's not worth trying. Being invested, holding securities, even at elevated prices, and experiencing a decline isn't the worst thing in the world. It's unlikely to be fatal. Usually, every market high is followed by a higher high, and dismounting from that process and failing to benefit from the underlying trend line is, in the long-term sense, a big mistake. So being in the market, enjoying that compound growth, staying with the process, I believe really is the most important thing. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. 
Oak Tree Capital Management LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.